percentage of men who are having reconstructive and cosmetic surgery has gone skyrocketing. Uh, the great Clint Eastwood in one of his memorable movie lines said, a man's got to know his limitations. There's a big difference between excellence and perfection. Having this cosmetic surgery is not going to make their life any better. Men get it in their heads that these things are urgent, they can't live with it. How am I the author of my own predicament? Uh, I just don't think that in our society right now there's that sense of accountability. You're a man living in the modern world in a time when men and manhood are not what they once were. You live life on your own terms. You're self-sufficient. You think for yourself, and you march to the beat of your own drum. When life knocks you down, you get back up, because in your gut, you know that's what men do. You're a badass and a warrior, and on the days when you forget, we are here to remind you who you really are. Welcome to another episode of the Sovereign Man Podcast. I'm your man, Nikki Ballou. And we've got a great guest lined up for you today. Today's guest is uh, a dear friend of mine. He happens to be one of the top plastic surgeons in all of Canada. And he's a man who's a deep thinker and has thought deeply about issues uh, with respect to, to medicine, with respect to the state of how people are interacting with the medical community. And he's been involved in men's work. So I thought his perspective would be a valuable and exciting one for you. His name is Dr. Joe Baum. Welcome to the show, Baum. Thank you, sir. And I'm kind of blushing. The top plastic surgeon in Canada. I'm good, but I don't know if I'm that good. Thank you. <laughs> well, there you go. I said one of the top plastic surgeons. I okay. think that's accurate. I think that's accurate. So give us a sense of your background. Tell us a little bit about how you decided to get into medicine, how long you've been in medicine, just so people have a sense of who you are. Um. I am approaching 70 years of age, and uh, I was born here in Canada. My uh, parents uh, were Holocaust survivors, and from day one, it was drilled into my head that uh, the most important thing uh, for a child is education. Uh, no one can ever take that away from you. So, at, you know, since day one, uh, I had to be something that I was able to take with me, portable doctor, lawyer, whatever. So at, at an early age, education is important, family is most important. So uh, during high school, my, my, my interests were basically for the arts. And my dad took me aside and said, you know, that, that's just not going to cut it. Um, went to university, uh, got interested in uh, sciences, uh, went into medical school, uh, fell in love with pediatrics, wanted to be a pediatrician. Uh, took my first rotation in pediatrics and found out that little kids sometimes die. And I could not handle the emotional strain of little children dying. Mm. I was at a total loss, didn't know what to do. Uh, befriended a plastic surgeon who was the kindest, most decent man I ever met. And basically, he took me under his wing, became my mentor, and I went into plastic surgery and uh, have never, ever, ever looked back since that time. But uh, yeah, that, that's how I got into plastic surgery, uh, mentorship, and uh, I hate to say it, emotional instability. Could, could, could not uh, tolerate uh, certain things in my life to make the choice that uh, this is what I was going to do. You know, I can totally uh, appreciate that. I don't think I'd have been able to handle um, 
seeing little kids die myself, you know, so I can totally, totally appreciate that. Do that, but it wasn't me. Yeah. 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 Well, good on you for knowing yourself, you know, uh, the great Clint Eastwood in one of his memorable movie lines said, a man's got to know his limitations. And that's not a knock on any man. Knowing your limitations is a powerful thing because it can show you where you can expand as a man too. What are the areas where you're, you're not limited? And, and if you lean into your strengths rather than try to lean into your weaknesses, you're going to have phenomenal strengths that'll serve the world rather than be mediocre at something. And I think that's that's fantastic that you were able to see something like that. So tell us, uh, Bob, why did you get interested in, in the work of men? Why did you decide to go and, and study this? What, what was it that appealed to you about it? Um, I really got into men's work and self-examination fairly late in my life. Um, uh, I, I'm an arrogant son of a bitch. I, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm the best. Um, <laughs> So there was, there was nothing wrong with me. There was always wrong with someone else. And uh, got into a situation uh, with interpersonal relationships, family, wife, um, where that attitude just did not serve me. And I uh, was walking around with uh, this feeling of resentment that was just like a, like a tumor, just eating away from the inside. And uh, it just was not going to work. Um, found out from a close friend about some men's work that he was doing and uh, got attracted to that idea. And uh, I've been doing it now for the last 10, 15 years. Okay. So you got attracted to this because you saw that there were some failings in the way that you were interacting in your personal life. So you were this rock star at work. You're doing really, really great. But in some of your interpersonal relationships, you weren't doing so great. You were screwing some things up. So you got into the work. So. How was the work a revelation to you? What did you learn as a result of doing the work? And why do you think it's important for men to be involved in doing this type of self-examination? Um, I found that early on in life, um, I always had to be the smartest one in the room. And that really limited me because I could not take any satisfaction in what I was achieving. Um, there was always going to be something better. Um, and no matter what I did, uh, it just wasn't enough because of this feeling of resentment uh, that I, I wasn't reaching my full potential. Um, came to the realization that there's a big difference uh, between excellence and perfection. Mm. We're brought up to this idea that this is the gold standard. This is what we have to be. Uh, this is it. And unless I reached that level, I couldn't enjoy my accomplishments. And it was just driving me absolutely crazy. Um, that, 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 that's what I learned. That uh, perfection isn't the goal. Excellence is the goal. Yeah, so perfection in this case was depriving you of the ability to be satisfied and fulfilled with what you were actually accomplishing in life, basically, correct? I just found that uh, if I did something really, really, really well and I got a compliment, the compliment went off my back with water off the duck's back. It just didn't hmm. absorb. 
yeah, I'm really good, but not well. When you introduced me as one of the top plastic surgeons in Canada, I know I'm not one of the top plastic surgeons in Canada. It, it doesn't absorb into me. Um, but being one one of the best, yeah, that, that's great. I, I can take that. So, let's talk a little bit about your expertise as a surgeon and what you've noticed happening out there with respect to men. How have men evolved in the world for better or for worse in the way that they interact with the medical system? Well, I can only address that as a plastic surgeon. Um, when I started my training, well, we're talking about uh, late 70s, early 80s, uh, plastic surgery was a very, very finite, small portion of what we did. Uh, I remember when I was uh, studying for my exams, I could sit at my desk with um, a couple of textbooks, some journals, and within about three or four months, I knew everything there was in the world of plastic surgery. Mm -hmm. I was a complete expert. The entire world of plastic surgery was like a nut, and I could hold it in my hand. Within about, you know, when I did my exams, uh, there was nothing I did not know about plastic surgery. And over the last 40 years, that amount of information is just growing exponentially day by day by day. So when I graduated and wrote my exams, I was a general plastic surgeon. That does not exist anymore. Uh, you have to be so subspecialized now that it just boggles the mind. The amount of information that comes out on a daily basis is just it's, it's staggering. When I graduated, uh, it was a, a boys' club. And the idea of doing aesthetic cosmetic surgery at a downtown teaching university, it just did not happen. People did not learn how to do cosmetic surgery. Uh, they were doing reconstructive surgery. So when I graduated, I saw that there was a, a big hole in my education where uh, you know I could do a reconstruction. I could do cancer surgery. I could operate on someone's hands, but I couldn't make... Uh, uh, someone's nose looked better. I didn't know how to do a tummy tuck. Uh, I did, that just was not taught. That was, that was kind of dirty, under-the-table medicine done by people uh, who weren't university-affiliated. So after I got my board exams, I took it upon myself to go and study cosmetic surgery with someone uh, on the outskirts of Toronto who kind of taught me how to do this. And 95% of our patients were females. It was extremely rare to have a male come in to have a nose job or to have a, you know breast reduction surgery or having a tummy tap. It was, it was almost unheard of. Uh, now, the percentage of men who are having reconstructive and cosmetic surgery has gone skyrocketing. So really? uh, when it comes to men, you know, uh, when I started my practice, a man coming in for cosmetic surgery was a rarity. Now it's just an everyday occurrence. Huh. Why do you think that is? Uh, I think it has to do a lot with social media. Um, it was kind of frowned upon uh, on men to try to improve their looks um, because it just wasn't out there. Um, you can go on to uh, any social media page and uh, see what uh, people are supposed to look for. The, the GQ look, uh, what a nose is supposed to look like, what, what your pecs are supposed to look like. Uh, you're, you're big into physical fitness and uh, you, you know what a great body is supposed to look like. And uh, this was not there for men. Uh, uh, men were supposed to be strong 
and uh, go out and uh, you know kill the mammoth and bring it home to their lovely uh, wives who had the perfect hair and the perfect nails. That they were the ones that were doing the cosmetic surgery. Men didn't need to have that done, and that's kind of turned around on itself. Men are having the cosmetic surgery. Look, I got a big honking schnoz, as you can see myself. And um, as Scotty used to, as they used to say on Star Trek, I'm a doctor, not a magician. There you go. <laughs> doctor, not a magician, right? Huh? But it would never occur to me to have cosmetic surgery done. It absolutely would occur to me to have reconstructive surgery done. I mean, you did that for me with my hand when I cut it up a little while ago, and I'm very grateful for that. But uh, it would never occur to me to have cosmetic surgery. I'm just fascinated by. What is it that is having men today go, yeah, I want to do this. This is a good thing for me to consider. I, I mean, I don't get it. I guess it comes down to what your motivation is for the cosmetic surgery. Why are you doing it? Who are you doing it for? Mm. Um, I used to turn away about 90% of people coming in to see me for cosmetic wow. Um. One of the principles of being a good doctor is to first do no harm. Yeah. And that people would come in, um, a young woman who wants to have her breasts made larger, and you'd sit and you'd talk to them. And in the conversation, you'd find out that they were having marital problems. Uh, husband was attracted to the secretary. And oh my God. It upon me that you're doing surgery to enhance their image not for themselves, but for someone else. So um, having this cosmetic surgery done on an individual uh, for that motive is not going to make their life any better. And no matter what you do, I found that these people were never happy. So I, I kind of eliminated a large portion of the people coming to have surgery for me because I did not think that this would make their lives any better. And it's kind of arrogant you know, to, to say that, but... Uh, now, I have colleagues who say it's not your concern um, why these people are having it done. Um, your job is to do the surgery. I, I never bought into that philosophy. I'm glad you never bought into that philosophy because I think that's terrible. You know, if if, if you're in a position to help somebody make a good decision around this, I think it's your job to do that. I think that in the Hippocratic Oath, uh, the very first part, like you said, is do no harm. Do no harm means don't have somebody take on something that in the moment they feel is so urgent, but in reality may not be necessary at all. And they could regret it 10 years down the road. I think it's very, very important for people to think things through and not just rush into things emotionally. And we live in a social media culture these days, as you said, where a lot of people are doing a lot of dumb stuff, dumb shit, as we would put it in the men's group, right? <laughs> and, and for dumb reasons. So, Let's talk about this as it relates to some of the, the, the men, because when you and I were talking, you mentioned that people's expectations of what's possible through the type of work that you do uh, are today completely unrealistic compared to 20 years ago. So first of all, what do you mean when you say that? And secondly, why do you think that is? Why do you think things have changed so much in the last 20 years? Um. Well, I think well, we were talking earlier this week, and I gave you an example of a man who didn't like the way he looked because he had man boobs, a gynecomastic. Yeah. Went to a uh, plastic surgeon uh, locally, had some work done, 
And the um, result was kind of mediocre. Didn't really like it. Uh, came to me because he didn't want to go back to the other plastic surgeon. And uh, this was just when the pandemic was uh, getting into second wave. And I said, well, actually, it was the third wave. And I said to him, yes, we could do something to make it look a little bit better. But again, it's not going to be perfect. Um, we couldn't do the surgery right away because of the uh, fact that there was hospital closures and uh, no access to operating rooms. Um, this man was so into the fact that he had to get this done. He was so unhappy with the way he looked. And as I say, it wasn't that bad, but he got into his head that something had to be done. Uh, got him, flew to a foreign country, had someone there do some reconstruction on his chest wall, and somehow they talked him into doing reconstruction on his abdominal wall. They did massive liposuction. Came back to see me about a month or two ago with seromas, pockets of fluid sequestered throughout his abdominal wall. And it's going to take about a year to get that thing settled down. So uh, <laughs> men get it in their heads that these things are urgent. They can't live with it. They go on the internet. They see other people who've had the surgery complications. That's the gold standard. That's what I kind of expect. So part of the problem is the abundance of information on social media of what's possible and with no idea that what's possible may not be possible for them, and also um, no, no understanding what the consequences of their decisions are, um, what the complications can be. Wow. Like, I gotta tell you, this this story to me is is sad, right? Because this fellow's obviously going through some some uh, some pain. He's experienced some negative adverse consequences. He probably feels bad day in and day out. And he probably, um, and I mean, physically he feels bad. I, I, he's not comfortable, but then he probably feels bad because he made a dumbass decision that really wasn't in his best interest. And I, and I think to myself, one of the reasons we do this show is because, you know, we say we want to make men more masculine. We want to make men masculine again. And to me, the first thought of a masculine man who's got man boobs wouldn't be, hey, let me go have surgery. The first thought of a masculine man would be talk to some professionals about how to get in shape naturally. And if I do all of that and I give it my 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 all and that fails, then maybe I'll consider the surgery at that at that time. But it wouldn't be a first resort or even a second or a third resort. There'd be a whole lot of other steps that a masculine man would take first and foremost, he'd take bloody responsibility for the fact that he put himself into this position by overeating, under-exercising, et cetera, et cetera. And it, it shocks me that I don't know how old this gentleman is that, that came to see you or anything like that, but it shocks me that this would be something he'd want to run out and do before he tried all those other things. And the kicker is he wants to know when I can do his surgery as soon as possible to correct the second mistake. It, it, it just, it's mind-boggling, mind-boggling. So doesn't this speak to the lack of responsibility that men in particular are exhibiting in the world today to you? That they, first of all, don't take responsibility for what got them into this predicament in the first place. Secondly, are giving the responsibility for fixing it to surgeons and then when it's not to their liking, they're still offloading that responsibility to yet another surgeon. 
and saying, you fix it. This has to be fixable rather than taking a look within and going, how am I the author of my own predicament? What are your thoughts on what I just said? Uh, I just don't think that in our society right now, there's that sense of accountability and accountability to oneself. And uh, I, I agree with you 100%. Uh, um, you can find anyone in the medical um, community to do any operation you want on you as things are going right now. Um, these uh, large surgery centers that uh, concentrate on cosmetic surgery, uh, the overhead is extremely high and they need to generate volume. So people come in there with an expectation for surgery and they've signed themselves up for surgery uh, before they walk, you know, as they're walking out the door. It's, it's, it's a factory. Um, so I think that part of the problem is the uh, medical profession is trying to generate volume for themselves in order to cover their overhead. So part of it is medical responsibility or lack of responsibility to patients because they're trying to push through patients one after another to increase their volumes. And secondly, um, as we mentioned, um, no accountability of the individual who's going for surgery to themselves to take on the responsibility of uh, not looking into the fact that things don't always go as planned because their expectations are phenomenally high, but they don't listen to what the complications could be. So they don't listen to what the complications could be. And that is, I think, indicative of the fact that people in general, but men especially today, are living in the, it's not my fault, ethos. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than, I'm the author of my life. I'm in charge. They're just outsourcing everything to other people. And they're, they're just, they're living a shitty life because of it. Like this fellow that you're talking about, I bet you before he did the first surgery, you know, he probably felt a little bit bad about himself emotionally in his head or, or, or I mean, emotionally in his heart and intellectually, maybe in his head, he, he had some thoughts going, Oh, I don't look good. I don't look good. But he didn't have all these physical problems and issues. And then he made what one of my mentors calls an unintelligent decision. He decided to go do this without really thinking it through. And he got a not, not so great result. And then he got in his head that, okay, I have to do this right away rather than think this through and maybe not do it at all or do it right. Do it in a, in a different way. And he, he, he flew to another country, engaged in medical tourism, and he made it worse, a million times worse. But that yeah. boggles my mind. I got to be honest with you. That completely boggles my mind. Yeah, I have to deal with this, people like this on a daily basis. Um, because of the prevalence of this material on social media, you can go on the internet or uh, anywhere and read up on a topic. And you get this idea that you become the expert on this. And this not only applies to medicine, it's almost anything else. So with a little bit of information, um, you would think that if you have a little bit of information, as you learn more and more and more, your appreciation of yourself as an expert would go up linearly. Um, there has been, a, I think, Dunning-Kruger effect, it's called. Yeah, I know it. Yeah. What, what it shows is that when you have a little bit of knowledge, your idea of yourself from the little bit of knowledge is that you're an expert. 
So instead of having a, an XY axis where it starts at the bottom and slopes upward, um, what happens is at the beginning, you think you're an expert. And as you learn more and more, your feeling of expertise becomes a U-shape instead of a linear curve. And it's just, it's just mind-boggling. Um, people walk in the door and they think that they know everything there is to know about this. And as you talk to them more and more, they, most of them, thank God, uh, feel that, you know, maybe I don't know that much about it. But there is individuals who think, I know all there is about this, and they just fall off. You know, they, they, they're done because of, of the fact that they don't appreciate the fact that they have no appreciation of the fact. They don't know what they don't know. That's, that's hilarious. You know, um, Dr. Anders Erickson, who did the, the study that came up with the 10,000 hour rule that said it takes 10,000 yep. hours before yep. someone's truly an expert in something, which is 10 years, 2.44 hours a day, every single day for 10 years straight. When you think about that, that's, that, that is some serious dedication to achieve expertise in this for you to go on the internet and for me to go on the internet and, and, and decide I'm going to do my research. And that just means I'm an expert. All I can glean from the internet is a very surface level understanding of whatever topic I'm going into. It's enough to make me dangerous to myself. <laughs> if you think about it, it's just enough to make me dangerous to myself because I think I know enough to make a good decision. And the truth is I don't. I know enough to begin the inquiry. And with the help of a good expert, and by good expert, I don't mean somebody who just knows their stuff, but somebody who has my best interest at heart and not their own best interest at heart, I can make a good decision. But if all I do is I say, okay, I get it in my head that this is a good thing and I'm going to go in this particular direction like this individual did, that could be disastrous. That could be absolutely disastrous. And I think it's indicative of what men are like in society today. I think a lot of men today are unwilling to take responsibility for themselves as a man, for how they need to show up. They don't want to be uh, thoughtful. They don't want to be somebody who is thinking about what men have thought about forever, which is, hey, let's have a family. Let's create uh, a, a unit. Let's have children. Let's pass on our genes. Let's, let's perpetuate the human race. Let's provide for that family, right? Let's protect that family. Let's be a leader in that family and, and raise the children right and, and, and help, you know, elevate my wife. They're just not thinking that way. So many young men are not thinking that way. Part of the reason we created this show, part of the reason we created the Sovereign Man Movement is to be like William F. Buckley said he wanted to be back in 1955 when he started his magazine, National Review. He wanted to stand astride history with his hand out like this, yelling stop <laughs> right but that's what i feel i'm doing take a breath breathe <laughs> yeah so i'm it's it's interesting to me that as a physician as a as a surgeon you're noticing a symptom of this type of change in society in a big big way so what do you think the solution is what do you think can be done what do you think men need to do now, I know you deal with more than men, obviously, but I mean, this is a show for men. So what are your, what's your advice to men? I think that you have to do the work. Um, you have to know what your parameters are, what your context is, why you're doing something. 
it, it takes a step of self-awareness. And there are easy fixes. You know, you, well, I hate to say it, you got a big nose balloon. And if you, you came and said, I want that nose uh, made smaller because it's something that's bothered me all my life. And I know it's not the most important thing. Yeah, we'd send you someone to get your nose fixed, not, not a biggie. But you have to know that when you get your nose fixed, that it may interfere with your uh, with your breathing. It uh, may cause problems with uh, with, um, with a myriad of other complications that can happen. I think you have to have that self awareness. So I think you have to be able to look at yourself and ask yourself honestly why this is being done, why you want to have this done, and you have to have someone who you feel is honest and straightforward and trustworthy enough to put your care into. It, it's a partnership. Um, when, when, when you go into any partnership in life, you have to be able to trust your partner. If you don't, you're, 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 you're going to lose all, every single time. Yeah. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. So to me, this is part of why the work that we do is so important. So many men are trying to go through life alone. They're trying to figure things out on their own. The, the idea of a man being a part of a brotherhood, being a part of a band of brothers like ours is so important today because when men are part of groups like this, they're going to be getting feedback from other men. They're going to be learning from other men. They're going to be learning from the facilitators of, of, of the group and of the program in such a way that the chances of them making an unintelligent decision diminish drastically. That doesn't mean they won't make unintelligent decisions. They probably will. They'll just make far fewer of them. They'll make a lot more of the good intelligent decisions. And I think that's what's lacking today, right? Women are really good at getting together, banding together, creating little sisterhoods and using that in order to move their lives forward in a positive way. And I applaud that. But men aren't doing that. They're not doing that enough. Like I say, I got a vision of reaching 10,000 men and having them be a part of our movement, right? But that 10,000 men is like one-tenth of a small town. You know what I mean? Of 100,000 people. If there were 10,000 men like me, each of whom worked with 10,000 men, 10,000 times 10,000 is only 100 million men. Bomb. 100 million men is such a small number if you look at the world as a whole. You know, and we need this. We need men to be part of things like this so badly. We need them to be thinking differently. We need them to take full accountability and ownership for their lives. And we need them to have people that they can be held accountable by and they can run things by. It's so important, in, in my opinion. And, and, and I, I wanted to hear your comments on that and, and how you think this could affect, for example, how some of them interact with you and and folks like you inside your profession? I think, well, you just used the word opinion and your mission in life is to make a difference for 10,000 men. And there's no way that you can give your opinions and your judgments to 10,000 men and tell each and every one of them what you think they should do. It's just not physical. Um, your only hope in life is the same thing that I have hanging in my office wall in my examining room. I have a mirror. And with that mirror, I'm able to point out things to people. Um, doing the work in a men's group, your job is not to tell 
these 10,000 men what you think they should do. Uh, your job is to hold up that mirror, show these men what they look like in that mirror to themselves and have them take on the responsibility of finding out what it is about them that's causing this problem and what they are willing to do, what their commitment is in order to rectify what they see in that mirror. So it's, it's a team approach. You're holding the mirror. They're looking into the mirror. They're making the decision. You're telling them what's possible, what's not possible from your expertise as a leader, as a doctor, whatever. But uh, that, that's your role is to, to point out the flaws, to show them the weaknesses, um, the strengths, and have them make up their own minds up on what they can do to go forward. No, that's very good advice and, and, and timely for me to hear that this morning. Um, we're doing this interview early in the morning, which is, uh, you know, a, a change for me. I usually don't start doing interviews until 10 a.m. I do a whole bunch of other stuff in the morning, but we wanted to fit this in. And it was the only way that was going to work for both you and for me. And I'm glad that we did that. But it was very timely advice for me to hear. That's that's important because, you know, there's times where. I want to jump in and push the man and go, no, no you got to do this. You're, you're, you're going about it all wrong, but it's not my call to make. It's that man's call to make. And all I can do is hold up the mirror for that man. And hopefully. And that create man, for them where they can do what they have to do and make their own decisions, but take responsibility for those decisions. Bingo. Yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's a good point. And I appreciate you bringing it up. I really do. And I appreciate you pointing out, uh, to me and for my listener, what actually is happening inside of your profession when it comes to dealing with people in general, but when it comes to dealing with men, because I think it's indicative of the overall decline in you know masculine behavior. To me, masculine behavior isn't macho behavior. It isn't like preening and beating your chest and, and acting all tough. It, primarily, it's about keeping your word and taking responsibility keeping your word and taking responsibility. And it, and it seems to me that because that's uh, a value that's been eroded in society as a whole these days, it shouldn't be a surprise that it's showing up in how men interact with their surgeon, with their doctor, with their lawyer, with their accountant, with their personal trainer. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, uh, it should be no surprise at all. And it, it's really good to hear from you that, um, you're you're seeing this and it's good to get your thoughts on what needs to happen for uh, a man to be able to turn this around for himself. So thank you for that. My pleasure. Yeah, you bet. So, Bob, if there were three things you would tell uh, a man listening to this show, be it a young man, be it an older man who's coming to certain realizations for the first time in his life, what would those three things be? What would your three pieces of advice be to men? Um, I think that the most important thing is some introspection to determine exactly what it is about themselves that they're their strengths, they're their their terms, their embodiments of what it is to be a masculine man. Um, and it's different for every individual um, to be able to say this is what's important. The rest is just fluff. Um, I, I've known you for years, and the most important thing in your life um, is health issues. 
um, your sons, your, your family, and everything else. And, and your work with men. I know that's very important to you, too. So uh, I would say the, those are the three things about Nick Ballou. That's the most important thing in his life. And correct me if I'm wrong. No, um, that's, that's accurate. Yeah. So once, once you know those three things about yourself, um, you have to be able to figure out with that commitment, what is your commitment and what is your ego? Um, health is important and you're feeling great and you're working out at the gym and you've got great abs, but you got a little bit of extra fat that's hanging off the side and you want lipo. How important is it to go for liposuction? So uh, you have to be able to figure out what's commitment and what's ego because uh, it's great to have an ego. It's great to to drive yourself forward, to do the best you can do. But uh, without commitment, driving that force, uh, ego just takes you right off the path. So uh, commitment before ego. Yes. Um, Send to your video again, brother. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, it's fine. Video before, uh, when I talk, I talk. <laughs> it's all over the place. Um, and the third thing that I would advise men um, you need someone to fall back on, someone to talk to, someone to point out your flaws. Um, you use the term a band of brothers, but um, if I need to talk to someone um, to kind of say, this is what my problem is, uh, you know, I love my wife very, very much, but uh, I don't have that heart-to-heart discussion with her. Uh, I have it with uh, one or two of my very, very dearest and closest friends. So um, to be able to have um, male cohort in order to expose yourself without any false pretenses, no false masks. This is who I am. Hold that mirror in front of me. Um, inspect me for what I am. So um, again, terms, uh, commitment, and knowing who your men are. That's fantastic advice. I really, really like that advice. I appreciate it. And you know, if you're listening to the show, Part of why we do what we do is because we believe that men need that brotherhood. Men need that community of men who are going to hold up the mirror and hold their feet to the fire because iron sharpens iron. And our exclusive brotherhood, the sovereign circle is designed to do that. You know, we have meetings with one another and we get into the discussions of the things that matter to men. And we have that circle of men who will hold that mirror up to you. And having that type of brotherhood is important. So if that's something that right now, you know, is missing in your life and you needed to get yourself to be the type of man you want to be, then I invite you to go to our website, sovereignman.ca and check out what the Sovereign Circle is all about. Dr. Baum, it has been a pleasure and an honor to have you here on the show. Thanks for being with us today. Always great talking to you. You take care. All the best. You too. Ciao, ciao. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Man Podcast. If you're ready to take charge of your life and become the man you've always wanted to be, we invite you to join the movement at SovereignMan.ca.